How does perseverance feel to you? In my estimation, oftentimes we are not aware of perseverance being worked out in our lives until the moments come when perseverance is tested. I mean, we can celebrate perseverance when the waters are smooth and we find ourselves rejoicing in the grace-wrought steadfastness that we see in our lives. But it's usually at the moments when the waves come and they assail us and we feel tossed to and fro by what's going on around us, perhaps sometimes inside of us, that we can become more mindful of perseverance in action as we essentially find ourselves enduring the storm. In times past, when there were storms at sea, there were some things that sailors needed to do to be able to endure the storms that they were in. The first thing they needed to do was make sure that they stood on the ship. Seems pretty basic, right? But when the ship is rocking and you're in the middle of the sea, in the midst of a hurricane, and the boat is going back and forward, oftentimes all you could do is just hang on, especially if you were on deck. Other things that you would do as a sailor in the middle of the sea in the midst of a storm is you might change the sails. Maybe if the sails that you had were weak, you would get stronger sails up there. If one of the sails ripped, perhaps a sailor would hurriedly climb up the mast and change the sail or stow the sail lest it put undue pressure on the masts. And one of the things that sailors needed to do to the best that they could, they needed to have the ship keep on going, pressing on into the waves. You didn't just want to be stuck out there in the middle of the sea, tossed to and fro by the waves. To whatever degree you could, you wanted to help the ship keep moving, to keep on moving into the waves. I think that whole scenario, that whole ordeal can well illustrate to us the necessary endurance that accompanies our persevering in the Christian faith. Because it might feel like that. Sometimes you just feel like you're holding on, not realizing at that moment perhaps that it's God who's holding on to you. And the reason why your grip stays tight is because His fist, as it were, is around your fist. And sometimes you're figuring out what can be done. Are there changes we need to make? Are there sails that need to be stowed, as it were? What do we need to do? And at other times, the best thing you could do is keep on walking. You keep pushing through, little by little. Sometimes you're sprinting, sometimes you're taking your time, and it's a light jog, but nonetheless, you are moving forward. The scripture has a lot to say to us about perseverance. Sometimes it speaks to us via godly examples like Jeremiah or Job, both of whom are examples of perseverance, albeit in different ways. Other times we get direct imperatives from the scriptures. For example, in Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 we're told, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 reads, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. At other times, our call to perseverance can come via Jesus' observations. You think about in the book of Revelation, there's more than one church to whom Jesus speaks saying, I know, among other things, Your perseverance. He told, for example, the church of Philadelphia, this church that had endured and persevered, he told them that he promised to reward them. He commended them for keeping his word of perseverance. And so it is with you and I as we come to the text today. 
as we see the Apostle Paul exhort Timothy to press on, it's as though you and I are being exhorted to press on. Timothy saw Paul's perseverance firsthand. Remember, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, you have followed, and among other things, Paul's teaching, among other things, was Paul's perseverance. Timothy saw it firsthand, and now Paul is calling him to work out that perseverance by the grace of God himself. He needed to, even as we need to. For Paul, you could say that the ship of his life had made it through the storms that assailed it, and he arrived in the safe harbor of the heavenly kingdom. And here he is, before he's about to undergo departure, he's exhorting Timothy to stay the course, so that by the grace of God, Timothy would not only arrive at the celestial shores, not only that, but that he might rejoice in a race well run before the time of departure. Even as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, Paul had the ability to do. Well, all of this will become much more clear when we get to verse 5, but for now we begin in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where we read, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. So if you look at the beginning of verse 3, you see the word for at the beginning of verse 3, and that signifies purpose. What Paul wrote in these verses, right here, verses 3 and 4, provides a rationale for the previous exhortation. And what was the previous exhortation? We see that in verse 2. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And as we've noted, Timothy's preaching was essentially to parallel the Scripture's appointed use. You could see the parallel between 2 Timothy 3.16, what the Word of God does, and what Timothy was supposed to do via preaching in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Timothy's preaching was to parallel the Scripture's appointed use. So Paul gives Timothy that exhortation. That's in verse 2. Preach the Word, and so on. Now we get to verse 3, where Paul says, For... Or because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now, in the face of it, that might take you by surprise. Okay, preach the word and preach sound doctrine because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine? Exactly. The changing tastes in teachers and teaching did not change Timothy's prerogative. The best way that he and they, he and the people that he was called to look after and under-shepherd as it were while he was there in Ephesus, the best way they could be prepared is that as he preached the Word of God and their roots were dug deep into the soil of biblical truth, they and he himself would be better prepared for the falling away that was coming. 
Preach the word because the time is going to come when they're not going to want to hear the word. Preach sound doctrine because the time is going to come when they're not going to want to hear sound doctrine. So the best way that you could prepare your people, it will serve as a kind of protectant, Timothy, for you and for the church. Don't forget what Paul told Timothy back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely, and in doing so, it would essentially be a, a God-appointed preservative. For not only himself, but for his hearers. So here Paul is telling Timothy the reason, at least one of them, for why he needed to preach the word. For the time will come, he told Timothy. And that suggests that whatever Timothy was enduring at the moment, there were nonetheless more difficult times ahead. Timothy's present heeding of the imperative preach the word would serve as a protectant against the harmful dissatisfaction with the word that would infect many. Well, the days were coming, and to some degree they had already arrived in Ephesus, when hearers would not, per the text, tolerate sound doctrine. The word for tolerate here in the Greek is a a word, anekomai. It means to bear with, to endure, to put up with, to have patience towards. See the picture that's being painted? It's as though the time would come when people would say, I've had enough of this. I don't want sound doctrine anymore. I want something that appeals to my interests. I want something that's more, I don't know, practical. I want something that is more up my alley. And they will get to the point that they will say to sound doctrine, sound doctrine, how long will I suffer you? And they would essentially answer that question by saying, no longer, I'm done. They wouldn't want sound doctrine anymore. Those expressions appear to reflect the rationale of those who would no longer, per the text, tolerate sound doctrine. This is another instance where the Greek words for sound doctrine could essentially be rendered as healthy or health-filled teaching. Again, we're reminded that that's what biblical truth is. It's healthy for you. It's healthy for your soul. It's healthy for the totality of who you are in some way, shape, or form. And contextually, by the way, see the connection between sound doctrine and preaching the word. Verse 2. Preach the word, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. So the expectation was that Timothy would preach truth, preach the word, but that he'd also teach it and preach it and divide it rightly. That's the implication. But there would come a time when people wouldn't want healthy teaching. They would want junk food. It's as though they would push away the plate of broccoli and begin rummaging around looking for cotton candy. Instead of the meat of God's word, they would begin looking for spiritually carcinogenic substitutes of one kind or another. What exactly would they want and what would they do? Paul tells us, these are those who, wanting to have their ears tickled, they would accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Now the language of ear tickling right here in our text connotes that they would have, more, more literally it appears, an itch for a certain thing. They would have a certain itch that wanted to be scratched. It could be for legalism. We've seen examples of that. It could be for prosperity. We've seen examples of that in 1 and 2 Timothy. It could have been for secret mysteries. We've seen examples of that in 1 and 2 Timothy. It could have been for many things. You'll come to find that error-laden teaching 
comes in many flavors. Baskin-Robbins has 31, last I checked. False teaching has a lot more. So it can come in a whole bunch of ways. Perhaps some would be wanting to hear teaching that instead of calling them to deny themselves, teaching that would call them to satisfy themselves. Some, perhaps, rather than hearing God's word proclaimed and explained, they would want to see never-before-seen mysteries revealed. This isn't a new thing. This kind of thing happened in Israel. Yahweh, for instance, wanted Isaiah to document on a tablet and note on a scroll Judah's rejection of his word. We see this in Isaiah chapter 30. There Yahweh identifies the people as a rebellious people. He calls them lying children. He calls them children who will not hear the law of Yahweh. And He refers to them as those who say to seers, do not see, and to prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 11. The interesting thing is, they would still want to hear what they had to say. See, they didn't just want to like, divorce themselves from hearing Yahweh's truth. What they wanted to do instead is they wanted to change Yahweh's truth. And if this person is saying something that I don't like, if it runs against the grain of how I want to live, you know what I will do? I will find somebody who says what I want to hear. That's what they were doing. So they were basically trying to persuade the prophets and the seers saying, don't tell us that stuff. Tell us what we want. And I find it so interesting that they still wanted to hear. They just wanted the message to be palatable to their own tastes. And if that was tempting for the people in the days of Judah, how much more tempting is it now when you have a variety of options at your disposal at the click of a button? In like manner, the Apostle Paul warned of those who would retain a form of godliness. We saw that back in chapter 3. They would want teachers and they would want teaching. And we see that even here. So much so, they would want teachers, they would want teaching, so much so that they would accumulate for themselves. The language here could actually be rendered, they would heap up for themselves. Maybe they had so many itches for so many things. I have a certain itch for this. I have a certain itch for that. And they would just accumulate teachers. That's what they would do. But these teachers wouldn't be the kind of teachers that God appointed for His people. To use language from Jeremiah, the kind of teachers that God has appointed for His people are those shepherds who are according to His own heart, who would feed His people with knowledge and understanding. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. Well, as a result, it should be no surprise that such people would turn away their ears from the truth and would turn aside to myths. So they'd be like the women that Paul spoke of in 2 Timothy 3, verse 7. Ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. They'd be like the Athenians, whose ears were always itching for something new. Acts 17, verse 21. And particularly, these people in the visible church, notice in the visible church, would turn away from truth, and they would turn to myths. Stories of one kind or another. 
The Greek word that's used here for turned aside, it's been used by Paul before. He used it in 1 Timothy to speak of those who turned aside from the things he mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And he turned aside to fruitless discussion. He used this to refer to young widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5 who apparently made some pledge to the Lord Jesus Christ but had turned aside, strong language, to follow Satan. It says that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 15. Now, many turned aside to what were likely Jewish myths. We've already considered that. You can look at Titus chapter 1, verse 14 for a reference of that. But many would continue to turn aside. What were they turning aside from? They were turning aside from truth, and they were turning to lies. This can be seen as a form of judgment. They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to their own desires. They left light, and they were given to darkness, thinking that darkness was light, and that futility was enlightenment. Now before moving on, I want to make some summary observations of these two verses, verse 3 and verse 4. First thing I want you to notice is this. I want you to notice this will happen among professing Christians. This is who's being spoken of here. People in the church who would be listening to truth, who get tired of putting up with that truth and turn aside from that truth. Sound doctrine would become increasingly unpopular. Hence, popularity should never be a bellwether for soundness. Second, look at what the people would want. They would want teaching conformed to their desires as opposed to teaching that conforms our desires to God. What might that be? Prosperity? An itch? Maybe some biblically justified quote-unquote reason for disliking or hating other people? Whatever it might be. They wanted something that was going to fit their fancy. And it's a good reminder for us that our posture should be when we come to the Word of God is that God's Word would change us. Lord, search me. Where my desires are askew, help them to become a right. Let my heart be lined up with your heart instead of me trying to line up your word to my will. Third, apparently these kind of teachers would not be in short supply. Seeing as the people would be able to accumulate for themselves such teachers, I told you this word only used once in the New Testament essentially means to heap together. There would be demand and there would be supply. Plenty of supply. This can explain why in... Barnes and Noble for so many years. I know it's changed its layout now, but for so many years, you go into the Christian section and you would see it littered with so many books that did not well reflect biblical Christianity. This explains why, right? Such teachers will be around. Have your pick. You want to heap up teachers? Go into Barnes and Noble with a big gift card. Fourth, we are reminded of the love of novelty that would lead people away to the truth from the truth. People would turn their ears, literally turn the hearing, away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So I say to you, just be careful. Beware of the novelty that might be dangled before you. It's as though Satan and his minions, as it were, used the carrot of novelty to get so many people off of the path to turn aside away from biblical truth. Don't chase that carrot. Fifth, Recall what Timothy needed to do in light of this. Did he need to address every myth that was out there? 
Did he need to disprove every endless genealogy? Granted, there's a place for apologetics, I know. Be ready to give a reason for the the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. And I know we are to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. But notice what the priority had to be for Timothy. Notice what the priority has to be for us. What do you do? They're going to fall away. They're going to buy into these myths. Timothy, this is what you do. You keep preaching the word. Because one of the best strategies of the enemy, I would imagine is to get the people of God in some way, shape, or form away from the Word. So Timothy, you keep doing that. The resistance of the sheep to deception would grow as they were fed well with biblical truth. The firewood, you could say, keep burning brightly in God's own as logs of biblical truth were thrown onto the fires of their hearts. So by God's grace, we stay the course. Preaching the Word. Now, Paul's immediate instruction for Timothy... In verse 2 is now going to be coupled by some more instruction that we find here in verse 5. So we just saw some of the rationale for the instruction in verse 2. Preach the word, Timothy, for this, verses 3 and 4. Now Paul has some more specific imperatives for Timothy, and I believe God has some specific imperatives for all of us. Verse 5 reads, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Beginning of verse 5. Here's another one of those but you beginnings. We've seen that a couple of times recently in recent verses. Paul contrasting Timothy with the people that he previously described. This is what these people are going to do, Timothy. They're going to want to accumulate teachers for themselves and have their ears tickled, want to have their fancies scratched, as it were. They're going to do this, but this is what you do. But you, this is what you do. What does he tell Timothy to do? Well, first, among the four charges here, the first one is be sober In all things. Be sober in all things. This was a call for Timothy to have a mind free from intoxicating influences of one kind or another. The kind of sobriety that's called for here was that of a clear mind. A mind that would be uninhibited by lies and heresies. A a mind that would be uninhibited by fears and worries. A mind uninhibited by wine and strong drink. And a mind uninhibited by sinful passions of one kind or another. All of those things have the capacity to lead people down a path of irrationality. Your thinking just gets messed up. Lies and heresies can do that. Fears and worries can do that. Wine and strong drink can do that. Sinful passions can do that. And Paul's telling Timothy here, no, no, you, you be sober-minded. Be clear-thinking. It should be no surprise to us that both Paul and Peter exhorted the church as a whole to be sober, and they apply it in different ways. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, we can see examples there. And Paul using that word where the people of God are to be like clear-headed watchmen, watching and waiting for the day of the Lord, not immersing ourselves in the quicksand of carnal indulgences and sinful escapism. Kind of draw some of that out from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Peter used the word and he applied it in a few ways. First, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he calls the church to be sober minded for this purpose. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Be sober 
and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's telling them, get your mind clear and don't forget to whom Peter is writing. He's writing to Christians that were suffering. And he's telling them, look, in the midst of your suffering, make sure your thinking is sober. And if your thinking is sober, what you want to do with your mind is you want to set your mind upon the grace that is going to be revealed at the coming of our Lord Jesus. You get your mind off of the present suffering to whatever degree you can, and you get your mind on the reality of grace and glory that accompanies the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want to keep staring at the things that are going on around you. You want to be aware of it. You want to be able to speak truth in the midst of darkness. You want to be able to do those things, but you want to be able over and over again to set your hope fully upon the grace that's going to be revealed to you when the Lord Jesus comes and you have a glorified body and you're standing before the Bema seat of the Lord Jesus Christ rewarded by the one who bought you with His very blood. The worries of this world, as serious as they could be, to some degree will grow strangely dim the more we get a better grip of that reality. Peter would use the word again. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he would use it in connection with prayer. He would tell the people of God, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful. That word for watchful is the same word for sober. Be watchful and be clear-minded in your prayers. So I love being able to be in a time of prayer, distracted, knowing I am nonetheless communing with the Lord and He loves me despite my distraction. Isn't that precious? That you could be in the middle of prayer and you feel like you're wrestling with yourself. Like, but, but I'm actually engaging in communion with the Lord. I'm just having this weird tug of war with my own mind. But that should not be an excuse to not fight the battle, to have clear-mindedness in prayer. So, so, so you realize that you are loved despite the way in which your mind is going here and there. But you do your best to get clear-minded and focused for the purpose of prayer. Peter also told the church to be sober-minded with regards to watching the ploys, watching for the ploys and the snares of the enemy. He said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. So there are traps. There are traps. Satan and his minions actually set snares for the people of God. This wasn't some throwaway exhortation like, you know, be sober for this thing that will never actually happen. Like, you don't have to actually worry about any traps being set for you. No, you'd have confidence. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, that the Lord is faithful and will guard you against the evil one. But that doesn't diminish your responsibility to be on guard against those traps that might be set for you. You put all that together, essentially what Paul's telling Timothy here and what we see in light of those verses is that we are to be careful to not slip into a careless state. Professional football is replete with historical examples of players who are on their way to score a touchdown. I'm not going to do an impression of it. I'm not going to cue up videos on the screen, but you've probably seen it, right? Whoever is running towards the end zone and they don't think anyone's behind them. And all of a sudden, they raise the ball up, and maybe they're pointing at a fan. Maybe they start doing a premature in-zone dance of some kind. And then all of a sudden, what happens? Boom! Somebody comes right from behind, or somebody knocks the ball out of their hand. And all of a sudden, the touchdown that they thought they were going to score, they don't score it. 
And I think for us, it's a good reminder to us that regardless of how far we've come in the Christian life, Christian, you have not reached the end zone yet. Stay sober-minded. Keep your eye on the prize and the task that's set before you. Keep your eye on the goal and you stay the course. Do not slip into a careless state of one kind or another. Keep your mind clear from intoxicants of one kind or another. Bury not your head in the world's entertainment. Don't say, I'm so stressed with what's going on in the world, therefore, I will bury my head in the sand of worldly entertainment. Let me just put on Netflix and let me just indulge in worldliness. Don't do it. Don't try to turn the pressure valves of sensuality and drunkenness and say, this is too much. I need to get out of this. I need some sort of release. Don't do it. Stay sober-minded. Don't let your pursuit of peace, this side of the Jordan, jeopardize you and put you in a state of spiritual slothfulness. Christian, be sober in all things. Next, Paul told Timothy, endure hardship. This word is used three times in the New Testament. Once is right here. This word is the word that Paul used to describe his state of imprisonment, suffering hardship in chains as an evildoer. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. James told his readers that if any of them were suffering, if any of them were enduring hardship, they were to pray. James chapter 5, verse 13. Paul's emphasis here is that Timothy should not shrink back from suffering for the gospel. Safeism, when safety becomes a priority, can lead to a lot of spiritually unsafe places. And Paul is telling Timothy here, in the midst of the temperature being turned up right where Timothy was, he's telling him, stay the course. You can't get out of the oven. Stay the course and endure hardship. For Timothy, for the time, that would be in Ephesus. You'll see a little bit later on as we get on in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's going to tell Timothy to come to him. So Timothy, endure hardship where you are. In Ephesus, in transit to Rome, when you meet me, Timothy, here in Rome, endure hardship. Safety isn't the priority. Faithfulness is. Endure hardship. His posture, though, was not to be strictly defensive. It was to be offensive as well. He needed to do the work of an evangelist, and he needed to fulfill his ministry. Now, Paul does not definitively identify Timothy here as an evangelist, which was an office uh, whereby those would be uh, called to preaching the gospel to those who didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But just as an evangelist's calling entailed proclaiming the good news of the gospel to sinners, so did Timothy's. So as Timothy preached the word, he was also to preach the good news of the gospel. See, Timothy didn't have this conflict between, do I preach the gospel to unbelievers, or do I preach sound biblical truth to believers? There's no conflict. You do both. You do the work of an evangelist. You give the flock sound doctrine. You do both, Timothy. You do both. Public preaching of the gospel interpersonal interactions of evangelism, and hearty meals for Christ's sheep through scriptural exposition. You do both. The phrase, fulfill your ministry, is a kind of catch-all command whereby Timothy is exhorted to faithfully discharge all of the duties entrusted to him. As the following verses, verses 6-8, through as they will make clear, Paul came to the end of his life knowing that he had fulfilled his ministry. 
It was the earnest desire of the Apostle Paul's life. You can see that in some of the language that he used in Acts chapter 20. It was like the, the one thing he wanted, so to speak, was to make sure that he finished the course that was set before him by the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to be faithful to the ministry that he was called to. And now he's exhorting Timothy so that Timothy might get to the end of his life and be able to know that he fulfilled his ministry. Now, concluding application. What about you? (laughs) I trust that you've already heard how the Scripture can be applied to you and I. Christian, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I trust you've seen it, but nonetheless, I say to you, Christian, be sober-minded. Gird up the loins of your mind. If there are thoughts that need to be taken captive, take those thoughts captive. Guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Don't become inebriated with the news of the day or the worries of tomorrow. You wouldn't want a surgeon distracted before they were about to perform surgery on you, would you? And God doesn't want His people distracted with all these different things when they are supposed to be discharging their duties as blood-bought sons and daughters. Christian, be sober in all things, not encumbered with a load of distracting care. Cast that care at the feet of your God because He cares for you. Christian, endure hardship. Don't abandon ship. By God's grace, sail through the waves. Don't sink or shrink back. Persevere. Don't let nasty words or threats keep you from the business of declaring the gospel or the truth that is inseparable to it. Years ago, it might have been, if I'm correct, uh, 1995, when I went to what I think was my first Monday night football game. My dad was a big uh, Cowboys fan, so I um, became a big Cowboys fan, and we went to what was, I believe, the first game of the season. It was a Monday night football game. It was the Giants versus the Cowboys. And we're there watching the game together. And it was, I I, I can say this much, I think, with with clarity. It was the first running play. It was towards the beginning of the game, the first running play that the Dallas Cowboys had. And Emmett Smith was given the ball. And he just broke right through the middle of the line. His offensive line did a great job creating this big gap for him. And he ran for like 60 or 70 yards, something like that. And he scored a touchdown. Emmett Smith would go on to become the NFL's all-time leading rusher. I believe 18,355 yards is his rushing total, how many yards he rushed in professional football games. Now, if you know anything about football, you know that didn't just happen all at once. It wasn't like all of a sudden he just ran for like a straight 18,000 plus yards. It doesn't work like that. What happens? You run for six, you get knocked down. You run for two, you get knocked down. You get pushed back three, and then you get up and you do it again. Maybe you run for five, and so on. You keep getting knocked down in the midst of all of that running. And so often it's like that in the Christian life. You trip, but you get up. You get knocked down. And whatever happens, you know by the grace of God, you keep getting up and you keep going. Even as Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 draws upon the sports world for some imagery, I think for us called to endure hardship, we could look at an example like that and say, I know I'm going to get hit in one way or another. I know I'm going to get knocked down in one way or another. But I know that God has called me to get up and keep going. I'm running for a crown that's much greater than an NFL championship. Per 1 Corinthians 9, 
It's an imperishable crown that does not fade. And will be awarded to believers by grace, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. And you don't need a nameplate on your door with a stylish engraving beneath that says Office of the Evangelist to do the work of an evangelist. In the early church, remember when the early church was essentially huddled in Jerusalem and then persecution broke out, right? We see that in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Persecution broke out against the church and what happened? The church was scattered everywhere and according to Acts chapter 8, verse 4, they were scattered everywhere Preaching the word. Now the word there for preaching is an inflected form of the word euangelizo, which means to preach good tidings, to preach the good news. And I want you to think of it like this. If you are someone who has believed the euangelion, you can euangelizo. Or to put it this way, if you are somebody who has believed the good news of the gospel, you can Preach the good news of the gospel to others. You've believed the good news, Christian, do the work of an evangelist and share the good news. Now more than ever. Why now more than ever? Because it's today. (laughs) That's why. I don't have to look at the world around me to say, now more than ever, share the good news. Grow in the grace of sharing the good news. Everyone who's believed it can proclaim it. And finally, Christian, fulfill your ministry. Parents, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do the work of an evangelist in your home. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Lead them well. Pray with them. Provide for them and be committed to them. Wives, love and respect your own husbands, submitting to their leadership. Being the godly keeper of the home that Titus 2.4 speaks of. Being well known for good works and good deeds, both inside and outside of the household, to draw some imagery from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. All saints, regardless of your station of life, follow the example of the household of Stephanus, who devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15. All believers have been empowered by the Holy Spirit for some ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Do what God's called you to do. Do good to the people of God, the household of faith, first and foremost. Right? Do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. Work it out, of course, primarily within your home, but then it shows itself in the local church and beyond. And finally, I close with doing the work of the evangelist. (laughs) While exhorting Christians today to press on, for anyone who is not in Christ, I don't exhort you to press on. I exhort you to turn aside. See, we've seen examples in this text of those who would turn aside from truth to lies. Well, the call for you would be to turn aside from whatever lie it might be, believing that you are good enough to stand before God and enter into heaven by good works, the lie of believing that there are many ways to God as though Christ died in vain and I could just choose what other way of getting to God. Turn aside from that and hear the good news. It's good news that although we have sinned against the holy God, God in His great grace has made a way. He has bridged the gap that we can never live. That is good news. Yes, the backdrop is bad news. That apart
apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, all that is reserved for us is unending punishment in the lake of fire. God is more holy than we can imagine and we are more sinful than we can imagine. But there's good news that God has demonstrated not only His justice in sending His Son to the cross for sinners, but He's demonstrated His love for sinners like us. And the invitation goes out to all. Come. Embrace the glad tidings of the gospel that Jesus Christ died so that all who repent and believe the gospel might forever live. And you see there's a cost associated with this. Paul's not hiding from that. Jesus didn't hide from that during his earthly ministry. But the personal cost is overshadowed by what Christ has gained and secured for all who are His and for all who come to Him for the forgiveness of sins. Believe the good news that Jesus Christ died and rose so that all who repent and believe might forever live. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the way in which You speak to us through Your Word. Hearing Your voice through this text, as it were, calling us to press on, to be sober-minded in the midst of the world in which we live, to endure hardship, to reject the priority of safism, to do the work of evangelists and to fulfill our respective ministries. Father, we thank You that we can run the race that's set before us because of the finished race, as it were, of Your Son. Thank You, Heavenly Father, for Your Son who went to the cross and said, It is finished. And we thank You for the way in which He completely absorbed the wrath that we deserve. Father, I pray if there be anyone in this room or anyone hearing my voice that does not believe that amazingly good news, may the reality of the bad news of divine judgment against sinners become real. And may the good news become all the more good. And Father, for all of us who are in Christ, may we find ourselves today freshly encouraged by Your truth to press on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.